Welcome to the Idea Pod, a podcast dedicated to exploring and interrogating applied ethics at the University of Leeds. Welcome to The Sex Pod, a podcast series exploring the medical, ethical and philosophical issues surrounding sex work, with a special focus on sex work during the COVID-19 pandemic. This Sex Pod podcast is being produced in collaboration with IdeaPod podcast. Today I am joined by Associate Professor of Social and Political Philosophy at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, Scott A. Anderson. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Georgina. (laughs) Professor Anderson has published a reply to Dr. Martin Moen's paper, Is Prostitution Harmful? And he has also written an article on making sense of the prohibition of prostitution in 2002. But I'll just hand over now to Professor Anderson to let you give a brief introduction to our listeners of your research interests. Thank you. Uh, happy to, to be here. I am a professor of, or associate professor of philosophy working in both ethics and social and political philosophy and really have a range of different things that I'm interested in. But I suppose these days I'm kind of interested in uh, how power works in both politics and in ethics and how to think about the ethics of using power. Uh, the thing that I've spent most of my time thinking about in, in my academic career is the, the topic of coercion. And one of the reasons I ended up writing about prostitution was because I was interested in uh, how relationships of uh, between men and women and the two genders reflect power dynamics uh, that are built into that relationship in, in the contemporary world and how to think about the possibility of engaging in, in sexual activity that is, is free and autonomous and the ways in which that becomes either corrupted or, or affected by, by power dynamics, especially gendered power dynamics, but also economic power dynamics. And so that has been a, a, a topic that I took up. I haven't worked on it much in the last 10, 15 years, uh, but it's still something that I think about and use as one of the kinds of things I, I think about the broader topic of power relations in society. I note to say that Professor Anderson has clarified that the arguments he proceeds to present are mainly applicable to prostitution when those selling sex are cis women and those buying sex are cis men. And I suppose um, power relations, both economic and gendered, are something that's sort of really caught up in the sex industry and, and sex trade. And so what I was hoping to first discuss is the nature of sex work. And I know you've done some writing on this, although it was a, a little while ago now. And I was just wondering if you'd be able to give a brief outline on the sort of stance that you take with regards to the ethics of sex work. Sure. So I think the the easiest way to see what I'm I'm interested in here it can be gotten at by looking at two different trends that happened relatively simultaneously in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. One was the sort of liberalization of attitudes towards sex and sexual activity uh, that allowed people to to break free of a lot of traditional views about what 
sex was about, what was proper or improper about mm -hmm. sexual conduct and so forth. At the same time as a movement in uh, law and gender relations to make it impermissible and to avoid allowing sex to become the kind of thing that women were required to do as a condition of work. So uh, work by feminists in North America, such as Catherine McKinnon, put on the map this new concept called sexual harassment, which really didn't even exist 40, 50 years ago. And the reason that this concept became important and still is, but is still obviously also not fully realized, is that sex as a condition of employment or as a condition of participation in various social activities had routinely been a way in which women were prevented from having equality in workplaces and education in society more generally. Mm -hmm. And so it was a movement of feminism to try to say, look, whatever people want to do with sex out in the private sphere, that's their business. But when it comes to things like employment and education and housing, it shouldn't be required for anybody to have to engage in sexual conduct as a condition of employment and education and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so the movement against sexual harassment was a movement to prevent these other ways in which power gets organized, such as economics and education and housing and, and so forth, using those kinds of powers to put sexual demands that especially had the effect of discriminating against and subordinating women as a group compared to the men who, who had the dominant roles in those areas. So, so those two trends, again, say from roughly the 1970s through the 1990s, came into to my consciousness when I was in graduate school as sort of heading in different directions, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the moves that people have made in, in arguing for decriminalization and liberalization of prostitution is to focus on how people engage in all sorts of sexual conduct now that doesn't have the sanction of marriage is is, is sort of like catch as catch can and yeah. people are free to do that but to then say well there's therefore no reason why people shouldn't be able to do this for money mm -hmm. runs into the problem that we have gone through a lot of effort in in lots of the parts of of Europe and North America to make sure that people don't have to do sexual activity for money and so that you can have a job as a secretary or lawyer or professor or whatever and have that job without any conditions being placed upon you for sexual conduct mm. all right so if that movement is good then it seems as though that leaves a whole group of people who end up in sex work without those same kinds of protections and they're, therefore treats them in a very different way than the bulk of people in the working world seem to want to be treated. That is treated as strictly employees at rewarded and, and or uh, fired for their activities as employees and doing the kinds of jobs that are out there and have their, their sexual lives protected from the kinds of powers of, of economics and, and work. Right. And so my argument against the the arguments in favor of liberalizing prostitution simply comes down to this, that it may in fact be much better for sex workers to have 
decriminalization, to, to have legalization, to have all sorts of things to make it easier for them to do their work with the protection of police and the other the other forms of, of law available. But what I don't see a result of decriminalization being is to make that kind of work the same as other kinds of work without stigma, without other disadvantages that go with prostitution, simply because there's this big divide between those people who want to be free from sexual pressure in in their economic sphere and those people who don't seem to have that as an option. And those are the people who are, are in sex work. I suppose the thing that came to to mind when you were talking about that is that the sort of groups of people feeling pressured into performing sexual acts as a condition of their employment. I think you gave the example of like secretaries in their job description, sex work wouldn't have necessarily been overtly listed as part of their job description. So it would be a sort of assumed pressure, whereas I suppose some modern day sex workers at least are saying this is my job. I am a sex worker. This is the service I'm providing. So it seems slightly different in that way. I don't know what you think about that. First off, I want to say there are some people who go into sex work with their eyes open and with a a view as to what it is that they want to do in order to make money. And they find that the work is rewarding and or at least not so uh, problematic that it makes it not worth the the kind of money that they make for it. But I think that that's not the only kind of people who end up in sex work. A lot of people end up in it without knowing that in advance and end up there because they really don't have access to other kinds of jobs that protect their sexual autonomy. And so I want to say that the the problem here isn't so much either the choice to go into sex work or the the choice to sell sex as a kind of, of economic activity. The problem here is that normalizing sex work will make it, I think, likely that more people end up in that as a matter of routine without having the protection of their sexual autonomy because, right, we will now think that this is a something that if you don't have any other good options, then why not require people to do that? Why not allow them to have no benefits of welfare or other kinds of protections simply because we are now treating this as an ordinary job category, but one that obviously then does not include protection against the requirements to to engage in sexual activity for money, right? Which is the sort of thing that other people in other and almost all the other professions have as a matter of right at this time and a hard fought for right. So I guess there's two things in that. Firstly, you sort of mentioned sexual autonomy, and that's something that you write quite um, in detail about. So I'm going to ask you if you could just give us an overview of what what you mean by sexual autonomy and why people who sell sex might lose their sexual autonomy, in, in your opinion. So I don't know that I have a great definition of it, and I don't think I even offer one in the the piece that I published on that. But I'd say that the the best way to think about autonomy in this area is something as a negative claim. That is that it isn't under the direction of other powerful agents or forces in society that use 
control mechanisms such as access to freedom, access to economic resources, access to social status, access to bodily safety, uh, and so forth as a means of inducing someone to do something sexually. So anytime uh, you find that you can only uh, have access to food and shelter and so forth because, right, you, you are compliant with somebody else's sexual demands. You are therefore, you are thereby lacking sexual autonomy okay. anytime you are. So it's a kind of negative condition in terms of what isn't driving your sexual choices and activities. And how would you differentiate that from people who are doing other types of work out of sort of really dire economic hardship and because they don't have any other choice I guess like an example that comes to mind is laborers in sort of third world countries or where they're under extreme poverty or putting themselves at at great risk of danger and I suppose in a way infringing on maybe a different type of autonomy how does sex work compare to to those sorts of jobs well (laughs) It compares comparably, but I don't think that that's an argument in favor of it, making this a common form of, of, of economic activity. That is, I think that the, the fact that some people are compelled to do dangerous, degrading work in order to survive is an argument against uh, whatever the, the structure of the situation is that, that puts some people in that position. Now, if, of course, we, we all are confronted with the world as it exists, and, and we make choices in that world. But it's also the case that it, subsistence is a necessity for everybody. And in some pl- parts of the world, there are, are jobs that need to be done for the society to survive, for yeah. people to get fed, and some of those jobs are dangerous and perhaps degrading and or at least are arduous. And so the fact that somebody has to do them and get paid probably too little for that is, is a, a sad thing, but it's also governed by the necessity of making that society work. Sex work is not one of those sorts of things that is a necessity that if we don't have people doing that kind of job, our society will fall apart, or at least that's, uh, despite some arguments to the contrary, I think that's true. This is the sort of thing that is done for the sake of a few people or several, some people who have the economic means for this particular non-necessary good, and the fact that certain other people have no other good options to make a similar sort of living that they can in sex work, except by satisfying the the desires and or, or egos of those who happen to have this kind of money and untaxed resource to, to spend for that kind of service. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm thinking of another example here now to just see what your response will be. So say there's somebody who's very wealthy, has a huge house, employs a cleaner, to maintain their house, keeping it spotless. I guess you'd say that it's not a necessity that they do that, but for the cleaner who's working, it might be a necessity for them to work to gain sustenance and sustain themselves and their family. I I mean, I think that that can be done in a way that is highly exploitative or not. It depends on the wage that's being paid. It depends on the conditions of employment. It's also the case that somebody's going to have to clean that house, assuming that it's going to be cleaned at all. And so, so a division of labor around necessary tasks 
that are conducted in a way that is is well compensated and under conditions that are as humane as possible does not mean that that kind of task has to be dehumanizing, degrading, and or the sort of thing that nobody would would choose if they had any other options. I mean, I think people do, in fact, choose to take those kinds of jobs when they do have other options, Mm -hmm. uh, at least if they are paid well enough and assuming those other options exist. Let me add one other background issue here or or relevant factor. And that is that a lot of people end up in prostitution or sex work without really intending ever to get into that. And unless one takes into account how it is that a, there seems to be this, this way of recruiting, especially women into this kind of work without really their uh, intended choice of getting into that kind of work and why that is is so common for sex work as opposed to other kinds of work unless we understand why that happens routinely even Mm -hmm. in places where it's legal to to engage in sex work i think that we can't understand why it is that this kind of work has the kind of negative stigma attached to it as well as the harmful effects that that go with it because of the way in which uh, you seem to have to cajole or condition people to take up that kind of work if you're going to get enough people to do it to meet the, the demand for it. That so doesn't seem to be the case for other professions. So it seems like you're saying there's something specific about sex um, as work that makes it different. And I was just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Right. One thing that has evolved in my thinking on this subject, and, and this will take me a little bit of, around the corner to get to, to the answer I think will make most sense here, is that I see that heterosexuality in particular in places like Canada, the U.S., and I suspect most of, of Western Europe, is a highly hierarchical system. That is, that people take pleasure in sex because of the, at least I'll say lots of people take pleasure in sex in part because of where this puts them in a hierarchical ranking of people on the basis of their parent attractiveness, power, sensuality, etc. And so one of the things that sexual desire seems to encompass at least in traditional heterosexual norms in, in these this part of the world and very possibly other parts of the world is a sense of one's place in a very large pecking order that you get to claim status by how much sex you have with whom you have sex if they are of, of a similar or higher status than, than you are and the liberty that one can take with one's sexual partners and and so forth gives a kind of value to sexual activity that is much different than the simple sexual touching pleasure of physical contact, uh, orgasm, etc. So one thing that people are buying when they buy sexual activity from sex workers is a kind of status with regard to their place in the sexual hierarchy by virtue of the ability to 
have sex with somebody of your choosing at your at your discretion mm. using the economic resources that one has collected and so sex in this sense is not merely the physical activities involved in sexual touching and, and so forth but it's really the status seeking activity that is is basically a reflection of male domination in in this hierarchy but but also relates to a kind of hierarchy within women as a group as well such that you get more credit as a man for having sex with somebody who is attractive and desired by other men so one thing that you can't abstract away from when thinking about prostitution and sex work is the status implications that people are going for or participating in in that sort of organization of of sex along the lines of something that somebody can purchase and somebody else can sell i think that this probably is applicable to certain other kinds of interactions in society certainly people seek status in all sorts of ways and and use money and p- purchase status and the cars they drive the booze they drink the uh food that they eat the restaurants they eat in and, and so forth but i think that it has this distinctively inegalitarian and uh reinforcing the, this hierarchical domination system when it comes to sexuality that tends to then work against the interests of women as a group when this becomes a sort of thing that becomes a reflection of economic power in society where that economic power is largely held by the other group that is men and used to sort women according to their ability to to unwillingness to to sell sex for money to ask professor anderson how this power dynamic might apply in situations involving male sex workers trans sex workers or sex workers who do not identify with the binary gender He suggested that the troubling gender power dynamics arising from female prostitution are not directly applicable to homosexual male prostitution, despite male sex workers facing problems that mirror those facing female sex workers. On the issue of transsexual or transgender sex workers, Professor Anderson told me that this was not his area of expertise, but that the emergence of trans people and the broader acceptance of them is an important change in gender relations more generally, and might signal that the issues that have historically made hetero prostitution problematic may be diminishing. No, I think it's actually really interesting you brought up that power dynamic and and social hierarchy because one of the things that's come up in my research is and speaking to sex workers and people that speak to sex workers is that when selling sex is criminalised or the people who buy sex are criminalised, like the men or the clients, the experience of the sex workers um, has been that the power dynamic has actually shifted to favour the client who is criminalised because they are then the ones that are putting themselves at that risk of sanctions or prosecution. So so you're basically decreasing the demand for sex because less people are willing to take that risk. And the people that are willing to take that risk are more likely to 
demand riskier services and um, be more abusive risk prosecution for other things such as violence against women and things so i understand what you're saying about the shift in power but it seems as though criminalizing the buyer might not be the answer i don't know what you think about that there's lots there that i don't know enough about to have a, a well-informed opinion about. I, I think you're right, or and at least this reflects some, some things I've heard, but I, I don't have independent expertise about it. It's at least weird, right, to imagine that the society is such that even if you criminalize the customers of sex workers, this enhances a certain kind of power that they have over their the sex provider. If you think about other other activities in society where criminalization affects willingness or unwillingness to do it, that does not tend to, to work that way. At least I don't think that it does. If you criminalize the, the sale of opiates or, or other hard narcotics, it doesn't tend to add to the power of the sellers of those things compared to the buyers. Uh, it may make them more violent, but I don't know that it adds to their, their social power or their ability to set prices or, or make demands and so forth. It would be worth, worth thinking through. Uh, yeah. And if, if it turns out that it does, and it's likely to be, I think, because they, they accumulate the means of violence to enforce their, their bargains with other people, uh, so as providing essentially their own police force uh, within the, the criminalized area. I don't think that that's quite the case, though, with uh, the clients of sex workers, that they become more like a, an illicit gang of, of, of workers. I think it would be that it's the buyers that have more power than the sellers, so it's the clients that have more power than the sex workers because, say, the sex workers are really need to make this amount of money tonight, but there's less buyers out on the street or whatever. They're more likely to take a riskier client or provide services they might not normally provide. So that puts the power into the hands of the buyer, not the seller. Yeah, I mean, if you... If you cut down the one side of of a supply demand relationship it tends mm. to make the other side it tends to make that side able to to drive a harder bargain so to speak mm. but i think that that's that's more of a reflection of the weaker economic and social position of the women who don't have some other alternative to turn to yeah i guess we've spoken a fair bit about the societal conditions and the um, pressures and power imbalance and it seems seems that these are sort of originating in society and in economic standing and things and I think one of the things you say in your paper is that the harm that arises from sex work sort of depends on the sex workers position in society and their their own availability of resources so does this mean that a sort of wealthy sex worker someone who's quite high end is able to maintain their sexual autonomy more than someone who's on the breadline working to put food on the table. Are those two people compromising their sexual autonomy in different ways? Possibly, though I think I want to put it more in terms of whether not so much that the individual is compromising it, but that 
society compromises it more for people with fewer economic resources than those who have greater economic resources and or greater power within a sexual hierarchy such that they can can set better standards of of working conditions, higher rates of pay. I don't know that I want to say that individuals here are compromising their sexual autonomy in this way, but rather that the social conditions for women who do subsistence sex work do not permit sexual autonomy in that case. For for high-end sex workers, I think it's very possible to say that they maintain sexual autonomy or that it is, is less seriously infringed. And I mean, one one evidence of this is something like the the rather fuzzy distinctions that now exist in some places between what is sex work and what is uh, seeking arrangements or yeah. sugar baby, sugar daddy relationships, where it's understood that this is a kind of sexual transaction for rewards that are monetary and other kinds of financial benefits. But it isn't necessarily on, on the crass model of so much for this service, so much for that service, right? Yeah. And Yes, I mean, that sort of activity has gone on for decades or centuries, and to the extent that someone could avoid that but then seeks it out, I think it's fair to say that that's that's compatible with their acting autonomously to do so, at least insofar as anybody does. But I think that that is still a really, really small sliver of the wider spectrum of what people are doing within the the range of sex work. And it's the idea that those who are not in that sort of position, who are at the subsistence level or the get tricked into it as a teenager or something like that, that they don't also have a right to sexual autonomy of a similar sort, I think is something that we should be very worried about. And I think that they don't. Okay. So say somebody went into sex work Uh, like you said, was coerced, tricked, whatever, and then came out the other side, stopped doing sex work, would, in your opinion, they be able to regain that sexual autonomy that they you suggest they might have lost? Sure. I mean, I think that each individual's situation will be different. I'll just say one other thing in this area that is, is slightly to the side, but also important for a number of things we've talked about. And that is, it's insofar as I'm really interested in the empirical, and I stress the empirical Mm -hmm. side of this as a, a thing to think about and look at in making these sorts of decisions. I would recommend Peter de Manoff's book on, uh, prostitution. He's a professor at Arizona State University, but he does an excellent job of pulling together a lot of the empirical research on the the subject. And it's surprising how harmful prostitution turns out to be for many, many of the people who go into it. And it's surprising in that it doesn't obviously to the outsider seem easy to explain why so many people are so badly harmed by by this kind of activity. But at least if the research he's citing is is sound, it's really harmful for many of the people who end up in this business in a way that one would not predict either from the outside or perhaps before one tries it out. And the difficulty of actually getting out of it for many people is, is also surprising as well. So 
insofar as people get badly harmed through the either decision to go into it or through the, the sorts of coercive means in which people get led into it, I think that that has to factor into a decision about how we go about treating it as a society, independently of the question of whether it's criminalized or whether we criminalize the activity of the customers. The, the fact that this tends to be a very dangerous thing for people to do should not be ignored in in thinking about the social response to it. The book Professor Anderson refers to is Prostitution and Liberalisation by Peter Damaneff. Damaneff argues that selling sex is harmful to those who do it and suggests that legal regulation can reduce these harms. He emphasises the psychological and social harms that can arise from prostitution and presents these as reasons to regulate the sex industry. Yeah, and I think your your emphasis on the sort of empirical um, evidence and the sort of lived experience of people is is really important. And something that came up in my discussion with B Piper, who was a member of the English Collective of Prostitutes, I spoke to, and the two healthcare workers. And it seems like the a lot of the harm of sex work, like you've said, comes from the society and like the hierarchy and the sort of stigma and world that we live in and I think we saw that actually during the Covid pandemic that sex workers were particularly negatively affected just by sort of being forgotten about in government support schemes and things so it's seeming to me like the harms of it are coming from the society and the way that our society is constructed and I was just wondering if it's it seems like full criminalization isn't going to solve that and we've seen the you suggested problems with decriminalization so it's sort of a bit of a minefield like how do we go about minimizing those harms so i guess i i certainly am not a policy analyst on this and and have not followed the the information that's Mm -hmm. come out of the pandemic so so carefully on this i guess there may be two things one is that having assurances that everyone in, in Western societies, at least, has access to all of the basic needs and, and income and other forms of good remunerative work is a, a baseline necessity in order to make sure that no one ends up going into sex work for the sake of simply earning a decent living. So if you can get that in place, then there will be a different set of issues and hopefully less problematic set of issues around around sex work and prostitution. Second, however, is in doing so, I think it's still a mistake for a, a society to simply say, this is a job like any other. That isn't to say that we should treat people who are doing that kind of work differently or give them fewer advantages, or, or as I think one of the things you've mentioned is uh, that, say, it was helpful to people in New Zealand uh, that they were able to claim d- unemployment when they were unable to continue work as a sex worker. And I think that's yeah. absolutely crucial to have those kinds of resources. Sex work has been decriminalised in New Zealand since 2003. During the COVID-19 pandemic, sex workers in New Zealand could access the government's emergency wage subsidy, which was comparable to the UK's furlough scheme, from which the majority of sex workers in the UK were excluded. Sex workers in New Zealand were also eligible to apply for job seekers' benefits. 
challenges. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I think that there's lots of reasons why, at least until we have really reformed what sex is as a kind of hierarchical uh, way of status seeking and status rewarding people for higher status uh, in terms of their, their, their sexual prowess, their sexual accomplishments, etc. Until we reform that sort of feature of heterosexuality, I don't think that sex work itself is going to become a completely neutral, unproblematic way of earning a living such that you could say, yeah, it's just a choice like any other. I think that it will continue to manifest these kinds of hierarchical reinforcing qualities uh, until there's a much greater change in, in our attitudes to sex more generally, especially heterosexual desire and activity. So until that happens, I think that as a society, we still need to treat this as not a favored way of making a living, but not necessarily one that we want to punish, stigmatize or criminalize. I think what you're saying, in a way, aligns with what I've heard um, some sex workers say, which is that they're not saying that in their fight for decriminalization they're not saying this is a brilliant job we all love it everyone should do it or that the main thing that they're saying is we want rights like everyone else we want to be able to access these resources which seems to sort of align with what you're saying but the legislation views might be slightly different something that was just just came to mind just then is could engaging in sex work possibly be a way for people to enhance their autonomy if the option in the current society is absolutely no work no money unable to put food on the table working or working like three jobs of really low paid labor versus doing a couple of hours of sex work and getting the same amount of money would that could that be seen as an autonomous decision to choose to do that to then have more free time and sort of be able to choose what you do with that rather than slaving away in a low-paid labour job that's currently available? I guess it depends on how you want to think of of autonomy here. Certainly, I want to say that that could be a rational decision uh, and that it could give people more options in, in ways that we associate with autonomy. But I also want to say that that's not genuine autonomy insofar as it is not a way of protecting their choices around sex, which most people, again, not everybody, but most people take to be quite special and quite related to their status as a human being, their status vis-a-vis their family, their community, their mm. their religion, and so forth. And that there might be some people who have to compromise that particular aspect of their personality and humanity in order to have, say, some recreation and or leisure time and or such is not the sort of thing that I think counts as true autonomy. Okay, so you you couldn't autonomously choose to value your sexual autonomy less than other things. Again, I'm not sure I want to use the word that quite that way. I think you could rationally do that, but I don't know that... I mean, it's not autonomous to to value your life more than your money and so thereby hand over your wallet to the robber. It's rational, but but surely that shouldn't be the choice that you have to make. 
found Professor Anderson's distinction between rationality and autonomy interesting and asked him what he made of philosophers such as Chrisman, who emphasised that rationality is a key feature of autonomy. All the suggestions, such as that made by Wertheimer and Miller, that a range of relevant options is not necessary for autonomy. He acknowledged that there is not a universally accepted understanding of autonomy, but proposed that in political and ethical discussions of autonomy, those centering on determinism are beside the point. Professor Anderson highlighted that, in general, people crave the opportunity to explore different types and ways of work, and that in the modern world, work is often a key way to express personality, seek validation and find a sense of identity. Therefore, he suggests that having limited choices for work, which are both socially stigmatised, regarded by many as unworthy or possibly pernicious, is a serious a hardship and signals a lack of autonomy. Let me throw out one other thing that seems relevant to some of the things we've been talking about. This is rehashing a bit of the article that I wrote. It's also worth considering how we would feel Not if we imagine the independent contractor, high-end prostitute who's now free to make their living in in whatever way they want by advertising here and there and thereby earning a a very good salary and, and having a wonderful life, but rather imagine what will happen if we, in fact, decide yeah, sex work's just another kind of job, laissez-faire, let let the market decide we end up with a corporation, something like McDonald's or Philip Morris or some other large conglomerate who has great economic power moving into the sex work industry mm-hmm. and creating jobs for sex workers, a la the way McDonald's creates jobs for counter workers and burger cooks and so forth, which are not terrible jobs necessarily, but they are highly regulated or or to update my my article to amazon warehouse workers <laughs> right who are on the clock under supervision and now make that for their sexual activities mm. would we think of that as a autonomous form of sexuality to be the amazon sex worker in in, in the warehouse factory on the clock the the monitoring equipment all around them to make sure that they are turning out enough services to justify keeping their jobs. Maybe that's just an emotional response to say that, you know, that doesn't sound like what we would want sex work to be like. But if not, then why, why do we think that that's different? It's interesting, actually, because I, I, I put a similar example from your article that you've just described to B, who was the representative from the English Collective of Prostitutes, and um, to sort of see what her response would be. And she said that she appreciates that argument, but it feels like it's prioritising the welfare of future non-existent people who might exist over the sort of current real people who are working in the sex industry and need better protection and I suppose I'm just thinking now if we're going off empirical evidence and things it would make sense to protect those people who are working currently and we have the evidence that are being harmed rather than making laws around what might happen and thinking about the Amazon sex warehouse. 
I, I mean, as a as somebody who cares about people today and people tomorrow, I don't know that it. Yeah, if you run into a situation where we have to prioritize today at the cost of the future, that's not a good situation to be in. Right. Uh, but it's also not just an argument about uh, some future generation. A, it's not that far off if, if in fact, we were to normalize sex work. Look at the cannabis industry for, for a comparison as to how quickly that industry will develop around a, a newly legalized form of economic activity. But also it's more of a, just a point about why would we find that problematic, right? If we do find it problematic, why? And I think that's because that intertwining, intentional intertwining of economic survival with sexual production, if you will, Mm -hmm. is something that we find to be the opposite of what we think work ought to be like. Even if we're happily capitalistic and we think, yeah, it's fine to to do work for money and revel in the income that you get. I think a lot of us are really worried that if you make that, make sexual labor a condition of employment for a large group of people as it is and think, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That's undermining something that we actually still value about making sexual choices on, on the basis of sexual reasons rather than economic reasons. That um, reminds me slightly of an article was comparing that sort of attitude to an attitude a while back about sort of actor actresses and singers and things and thinking that that's not a thing that should work. That's the article I think I was responding to in my longer piece by Martha Nussbaum, whether from reason or prejudice, uh, selling prostitution and sex selling sex work or something like that the article is whether from reason or prejudice taking money for bodily services and is written by martha nussbaum so i was just wondering if it's like is it possible that that sort of gut reaction of oh no sex isn't something that we should be selling is something that in a hundred years we're going to be like oh how old-fashioned of us it's possible, um, but again, I think that this is is a place where that that movement towards preventing sexual harassment mm. was the sort of like tell that no, this isn't just about prudery. This is about protecting people's autonomy, especially when in the the sexual domain, there's one group that has had much less autonomy historically and. That has been reinforced through the economic domain and that in order to equalize things between men and women, we actually had to get the, the sexual demands on women out of the marketplace in order to make it possible for them to have access to work and education and, and housing, et cetera, on equal terms. with. Mm. And um, I think I think one of the things you write about is if we normalize sex work, that might lead to some workers being expected to provide sexual services sort of on a par with their other jobs so for an example like a it being written into a job contract of a secretary or receptionist but I was just having a think about it and I was thinking that well we wouldn't necessarily write other other roles that people do charge for into those kinds of jobs so we wouldn't expect a receptionist or a secretary to 
look after our children or clean our house or breast or provide breast milk for our children sort of thing. So would sex work necessarily be seen in the same in that way? I mean, it's true that in the wake of the reforms around sexual harassment, there has been a much greater sort of like cordoning off of most of the economic activities that people do from the kinds of personal services that you just described, including <laughs> sexual activity. I think, however, if you went back and, and looked 40, 50, 60 years ago at the employment of women in the labor force at that time. I don't know about providing breast milk, but all of the other things you just mentioned could easily have been part of the job of a woman working for a man in an office, looking after their children, picking up their dry cleaning, ordering flowers for their wives, and so forth. All of those were the sorts of things that people in power who were exclusively men mm. would feel was entirely their their right to ask of a subordinate as a condition of their employment, even if it was their secretary or their office manager or bookkeeper or whatnot. I'm just thinking maybe the difference with that is it's not necessarily written in officially into the job description. So I think it might be something that's expected or unspokenly assumed, but not necessarily explicitly said. There, there's a lot of economic history here that we'd, we'd have to get into to, yeah. to, to sort this out. And it's also very possible that things in, in the UK and Europe are different than in America. But at least philosophically, I think both places have as, as an underlying idea that the employer sets the terms and the worker accepts or rejects them. This is a, a at-will sort of relationship. If the employer says, yes, you're my secretary, but now you have to open the mail or now you have to answer the phones or now you have to do this other thing, mm. the job has just changed and now you can accept or reject the new terms. Mm. But it is up to the employer to decide what the employee does and the employer and the employee is up to up to them to decide whether they want to keep working or not. And what, what about the um, sex worker who has very clear rules and boundaries about what they might do. They might be very specific about the type of sex work that they do, the acts they perform. Um, and that might even, they might have even clearer rules and boundaries than people in non-paying sexual encounters, such as romantic relationships. So is, are those setting those boundaries and things, could that be seen as a type of self-determination and autonomy or, or not? It is, but I also suspect that it's not, very, I mean, it's it's certainly not universal for sex workers okay. to be able to do that. Uh, it will depend upon whether they they still have enough clients to to pay their bills as after they set those, and also whether they have the ability to enforce those with the help of police and and so forth when they are violated. I'm certainly in favor of having the ability to enforce those kinds of things with with the the arm of the state behind them. But in fact, I think it's probably less easy for them to do so in general. Certainly, if they don't have a network of other sex workers with them who can similarly agree to make those kinds of conditions common thing and report on the, the Johns that don't. And I think that, there. that um, what you just said about having other workers with them is one of the arguments that sex workers give in favour of decriminalisation because it means that they be mm -hmm. able to work together in that way and have more safety. So I was just sort of 
thinking about all of these arguments, I was just going to ask you, in an ideal world, how do you think the sex industry would best be regulated to protect the rights of these uh, sex workers if we accept that it's not something that's going to go away? Again, that's getting somewhat out of anything I have actually expertise on. But certainly the police should should not treat prostitutes as non-human beings. They should certainly take their complaints seriously. They should certainly respond to their complaints against clients as, as they would to anybody else's or hopefully better than they do to some people's complaints. I mean, it is a tricky question. I don't think that there is any single answer that answers all of the kinds of worries that, that need to be addressed. I think somebody like Oli Martin Moan in his, his view here is that the fact that people don't treat this as just another kind of job, that they stigmatize it, that they don't come to the aid of, of sex workers the way they should, reflects merely a kind of prejudice against sexual activity and so forth that we should get over. And I think that that is missing a lot of the concerns that that go into allowing people to explore sexuality and protect their sexual choices against all sorts of pressures that can be put on them, uh, especially economic pressures, especially uh, the pressures that, that end up forcing a lot of the sex workers into the sex work industry, uh, whether it be economic or social or drugs or any of the other things. And until you can keep, find a way to, to address all of those kinds of pressures, I don't know that you can expect mere decriminalization to actually solve all of the problems that, that are, are plaguing the sex work industry. I was just going to ask, are you using the words normalization and decriminalization interchangeably, or do you think that they're... No, decriminalization is merely a legal term. Yeah. That is, we now make no laws against various kinds of activities, which currently are illegal in many places. Normalization is a more philosophical or sociological term that would involve or, or... some form of decriminalization, though we might normalize marijuana, but yet restrict it to certain age categories, might require certain licenses to sell it and so forth. But normalization is essentially, let us treat this as the same as any other kind of work. Okay. It's interesting that you say that because from what I've understood from the sex workers that I've spoken to, when they say they want decriminalization, they say they that that means they want sex work to be treated as another kind of work. So it seems as though there is some overlap in people's minds when they're talking about the two things. Well, I think the hope is, and I mean, I, this is not an irrational hope, but the hope is that by decriminalization, you will get normalization. There isn't an easy policy way to either implement or to prevent implementing normalization. There are only policies around criminalization, decriminalization, and those kinds of things. So, so I, as a legislator, I can pass a law that says it's illegal, or I can rescind the law that said it was illegal and make it this. But normalization in the sense of 
making this the kind of thing that people are like, oh yeah, my, my daughter's a sex worker, and, and uh, after uh, she's thinking of doing that for a few years, and then maybe getting into influencing or whatever <laughs> people do these days, right? Normalization is this is the idea that it's like everything else, but I don't think that you get normalization just from decriminalization. And I'm not sure that in general we want normalization because I don't see how normalization in that sense is compatible with the prohibition of sexual impositions on ordinary employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, that's that hinge that I think I'm trying to, to drive a wedge between at least conceptually so that people will stop and ask, do we really want sex work to be just another way of using your body to make money? If so, why are we still so so resistant to bosses demanding their employees sleep with them as a part of their compensation package? Yeah, one of the things that B said was that she suggested the reason people feel uncomfortable with sex work is because sex workers are charging for something that other women give away for free. So that's like intimacy, attention, sex. And I wonder what what do you think about that? There is undoubtedly something to that, but I think that it, at least the the more pressing worry I have is that people shouldn't be required to to make that bargain as a condition of the other kinds of power relations that they are right. in with with their jobs and so forth. Yeah. So. Yes, undoubtedly, there are people who are are against this because they fear that, say, this will affect their relationship with their lovers, husbands, and, and whatnot. But it's also, I think, that they're afraid that this will become normalized for them, too, that it will be okay for somebody to say, well, look, why don't you do this for me and I'll pay you this? Or if you don't do this for me, then you can't have your promotion because it's just another part of things that people do for money. And if as a society, we want to draw a line between those and say, well, regular employees don't have to do this, but if you're in sex work, you do, that line is hard to explain on anything other than we think sex is special. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights with me. It's a really, really interesting chat. Thank you for asking. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. The Idea Pod is produced by the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre at the University of Leeds. Find out more at ahc.leeds.ac.uk slash ethics music composed and conducted by josh armitage